What's up, dive team? Have you ever wondered what it's like to be an underwater welder or commercial diver? If so, you have taken a jump into the right podcast. You're listening to Break Down the Dive, where I, your host, Blake Riddle, share my own personal experiences as a working commercial diver, as well as break down my industry for those interested or intrigued. So with that said, let's splash. Welcome to the show, guys, and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Break Down the Dive's third episode, which is going to be on habitat work, also known as hyperbaric work. We got a few questions that we're going to get answered today. What is habitat work used for? What are some tricks to not drop anything while working in habitats? What are the smallest habitats I've been in? What is the largest habitats I've been in? Uh, What kind of work are you doing in habitats? And getting used to working in tight spaces. Today's show is sponsored by Hanging Let Apparel. Beneath the Swell is where we dwell. So go ahead and and follow them on Instagram. uh, Hanging underscore lead. Uh, Keep your eyes open for awesome content that's always being posted. And um, yeah, let's get into this. So what is habitat work used for? For those who don't know, habitat work is basically work that you're doing underwater, but inside of an air bubble or an air pocket. It's created and built by divers like myself to be able to perform work that needs to be out of the water. So maybe it's, you know, to contain the oil, maybe it's to prevent a ship or an oil pipeline from leaking. Um, All these jobs uh, might not be able to come out of the water. So like, for example, you have an oil pipeline that's, you know, stretched across the ocean floor. It's, It's not as if you could just rip the pipeline off the floor and bring it to the surface to do the job right so what you do is you create a habitat you place it over the work and once the habitat is placed you then remove the water which is then allows the divers to perform the work in a safe environment and you will no longer have the issues of you know oil leaking or whatever or you if you do you have the ability to contain it because everyone knows that oil is uh, sits on the surface of water, right? So if it leaks, it's, it's very challenging to, uh, can contain it. So some of the things that rudder or, um, habitat work is used for is things like oil pipelines. Um, they can be as big as, uh, you know, a house in some cases. And, uh, the one that I'm actually speaking of is called the Aquarius reef base. It's an underwater habitat that's located five miles off Key West Largo in the Florida Keys and it's a national marine sanctuary it's one of the three undersea laboratories in the world dedicated to science and education so we have scientists that live in this habitat just off the coast of Florida to study and um, become more educated in the surrounding reefs to be able to study things like the coral you know because of the bleaching that's going on with the rising ocean temperatures um, if you've never seen anything uh, about the Aquarius Reef Base, uh, I urge you to go onto Google and look it up. It's pretty awesome. It's basically a house. It is a house that's underwater, and they live in this habitat for I think about a month, I believe, and then they have to go do their uh, their decompression, and then they come back to surface pressure and carry on their you know their their year or whatever. But uh, it's all used for study and. 
that's the the biggest habitat that I've ever heard of as far as um, like with multiple people being able to live in it. Uh, there are also habitats that are used for, say, rudders on ships, which are, you know, 35 foot high by, you know, 15 feet wide. And it's to in, completely encapsulate the whole entire rudder, which is for things like maybe you have to cut into the, the shell plating um, and repair, you know, some contact damage that had happened. And it's going to take a lot more than just a, a coffer dam simply being placed on the rudder. It has to be completely encapsulated. So um, those coffer dams and habitats can be big enough to carry like, f you know, four or five guys. Um, so those habitats are are pretty fun to work in because you, you feel a lot more open, you know. But when you're working, say, on like a, a stern tube of a ship in a habitat that gives you like you know three foot maybe maybe two foot on either side of your shoulders um it's you know and you're trying to move you got your, your wetsuit on or dry suit depending on where you are in the world you know because of water temperature if you're in you know uh alaska you're going to be all suited and booted in your dry suit your woolies you know your harnesses and it you know it, takes, it makes things a little more cumbersome in, in colder spots obviously but um, the work it remains the same. So, and you have to perform regardless of the temperature. But it is nice when you get to be in like Hawaii or, you know, Cozumel or, you know, Bermuda, and you get to wear your trunks and be totally fine all day, you know? So, when you're on jobs uh, like the one I was on in South Korea, you're just dreaming of being in a place like Bermuda in your board shorts. Um, I'll tell you the full story about uh, this job that happened in Busan, Korea. It was brutal. Like it, it went for a total of thirty-six hours, if I remember correctly, thirty-six hours straight, um, and that was just my shift. Uh, in total, um, the job lasted for about four days, but my worst shift on it went for thirty-six hours straight. It was the last shift. Uh, we had guys that were there for the day crew and a night crew as well. I was on night crew. So we started at around like, uh, 12 midnight, I believe it was. And we didn't get off until, oh, what was it? Like eight o'clock at night, the next day. So we went from 12 midnight to 12 in the afternoon to 12 midnight again to then eight o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning is what it was 11 o'clock in the morning is when we got off so i mean it was cold it was in the middle of like february and if anyone has ever been to south korea it, its temperatures are kind of similar to california i'd say like in central california where like in the summertime it's pretty nice you know like you can wear shorts and, a, and a, maybe a tank top you know maybe like a light jacket or something um but then during the winter time it's like it's cold you're, you're you know wearing a down jacket you got your your undergarments under your pants even like when you're walking down the street in in san francisco or whatever like it's cold you know like it is cold like in south korea when i was there it was on this job specifically with the wind chill it was about like 27 degrees it was around 44 five maybe like with no wind but when the wind kicked on oh shit you were shaking in your boots it was 
freezing cold. The water temperature was about 40, which meant that it was warmer in the water, much, much warmer. And even then, like you get in there, you have a leaky dry suit, right? It, the water pours into your suit. I mean, we had a guy that I worked with on this job and he was from Houston, Texas. And the water temperature then uh, down in Houston can get pretty cold, but he's one of those guys that's just like a, a wetsuit all year round, you know? And he didn't bring a dry suit to South Korea, which was a huge mistake. And he, even to this day, knows and has said that was a big mistake. Uh, he got to the job. We, you know, we started getting after it. And the first portion of the job was to uh, template the stern tube. So we had to remove the rope guard, which was done on a previous job, I believe, if I remember correctly. Or maybe it was like the first shift uh, that removed it. And then we came in as night crew and they had already had the rope guard. So what I, or had had the rope guard removed. So my shift, uh, we started with templating the stern tube. And because what we're doing is we're basically building a, a, uh, we're building this habitat and it's going to have a, a, a welded fixture, welded plate to the stern tube to be able to create the strength and uh, rigidness that we need to be able to live inside this thing for the next, you know, three days. Because we're doing day shifts, night shifts, guys are coming and going. There's always someone inside that habitat once it's on. Always. Like, it is, you were, we never have someone just, or that thing just going by itself um, for longer than 30 minutes. And the only reason why we do, uh, we have no one in it for the first 30 minutes is for obviously testing purposes to make sure that everything is holding, you know, there's not going to be any blowouts, but once the test is complete, we have someone in there consistently working at all times until the job's done. So we get in there, we start templating the, uh, the stern tube and he's immediately jumps in the water is already cold. Like he's cold before we even get in the water. I mean, it's like 12 at midnight at this, at this time. And keep in mind, we're like on, uh, LA time. Cause I think we like got there. Um, we got there at like 12 in the afternoon, maybe the day before, which gave us about a 12 hours, uh, amount of time off. And then we slept for eight hours and then up right again. And then straight into the job so like our bodies are still acclimated to the la time which is completely flipped when you get to the korea you know so you're like all jet lagged you're cold and you're about to start the job and you know it's going to go for like three to four days like we can we've been able to do it in i think around like two days um when everything goes smoothly which is that's when it's awesome when you're just like yes we killed it but shit happens in these jobs and you know you got to adapt and overcome and sometimes it just takes a little bit longer than anticipated but uh like i said he was freezing cold right out of the gate you know so his legs are starting to shake and we're templating the the cern tube so we're, we're tack welding uh some metal round or square stock around the, the stern tube to get this uh measurement we get the measurement and he's just shaking shaking and and we end up being in the water for like three and three and a half four hours and he's like dude i gotta get out he's like i cannot stay in here any longer or i'm going to not be able to even climb myself up the ladder so they pulled him i'm cold already but i got like a dry suit on with some woolies so i could stay in just a little bit longer but i'm just i'm shaking just as much as him this, this dude has got a lot more meat on his bones he probably weighed like i think i if he's listening to this hopefully he doesn't get pissed but i'm gonna guess he weighs like 
maybe 225, but straight muscle, big dude, strong dude. So like I'm pushing like 160, um, but you know, I'm shaking and he's, if he's shaking, I'm no, uh, I'm fucking cold, you know? So he's freezing. He gets out of the water and they put another guy in and, uh, we completed the, the templating. We both get out of the water. Uh, wind at that point, I don't think had kicked on because it was nightfall, but still freezing cold and you're in Korea. So like, you know, you get to the, uh, the gas station or the place that you're going to pick up your food and you can't even read the menu and you're like, you know, I'm starving, you know, I'm, I'm, all I want is in and out and it's like, it ain't there. You know, you just ain't got nothing similar. Like even McDonald's tastes like crap. Um, but yeah, then you you know, pick up all your Korean lunch and you take it to the job. You get out of the water, you eat for a minute while you're measuring stuff. I mean, you're eating while you're going. You ain't you ain't just we're all we're not just sitting down and hanging out. We're we're eating while we're measuring. We're we're plasma cutting, and uh, we get everything cut. We get guys back in the water. Um, at that point, my dive was done. I did the templating, and the guys get back in. They put the habitat on guys get inside um the the habitat and start ripping the whole entire seal assembly which is the portion of the job that needs to be replaced we rip it apart right we rip it apart we do all of our tests and this is after our, our habitat uh, habitat test right so you're before you're testing for any air leaking coming out of the sides if there is leaks that are too aggressive to for the compressor to maintain so like the We'll utilize a, like a Solair mobile compressor, typically, is the, the kind of compressor that we're using, which is like an, a 185 CFM, and we're pumping air uh, into the habitat. Once the divers have called that, hey, we've sealed the inside, um, we're ready to dewater the, the habitat. So they start dewatering, and you're starting to check for your your, your uh, leaks on the outside. So you got a guy on the inside, you got a guy on the outside. Both of them are talking to each other to try to figure out if there is a leak, where is it, and let's seal it. Um, once everything is is sealed, then uh, you start running your your habitat umbilicals, you which has your your main air for the habitat. It has light. It has communications. And once all that is in place, you're definitely going to need some lanyards. You're going to need to install some lanyards on really all your D-rings. If it's a if it's a steel cofferdam, which in this case it was not, you're going to, you know, magnets is something that you need to definitely carry on you. Um, as many magnets as you can, any place to hang stuff. Obviously, when you're doing a steel habitat there's obviously a lot of like angle iron which are strong backs that are used to keep it rigid right that you can hang stuff on or place tools in um, but organization inside habitats is crucial because of the tight space that you're in if you create a mess then it becomes a problem when you need to locate a tool so you know organization is key and then plus when you're done with your shift and the next guy has got to come in behind you you want to make it his life easy. You know, you don't want him to come in and be like, what the heck? A tornado went through this two foot area and just wrecked everything, right? You, you want to set him up for success because you're trying to get out of there. You're trying to get the job done. You know, even the small amounts of time that he's spending looking for tools adds up. So organization is key. But um, so, yeah, you run all your, your, your habitat umbilical, your lights. And once all that's ran, then you, the divers call it good, 
everything's secured, you get out and you wait for your 30 minutes and you just make sure that this, that the habitat is holding pressure and the compressor is running correctly. There's no CO2 um, sensors going off. So once everything is clear and go, good to go, that's when you jump in there and we start ripping everything apart. Um, but basically, the job was going smooth. It was going smooth up until about um, the, well, actually, as a matter of fact, in the beginning, the when we templated, that's what it was, all right? So this was, remember, give me a break. This is like about two and a half, two years ago now? Two and a half, we're in 2021. Yeah, two and a half years ago. So when this happened, uh, it was like, the, it caused the problem was the, the templating. Because if you have a, a circle, it's much easier to just cut your, you just take your circumference or your, uh, your circumference reading, right? Once you have that measurement, then you could just cut your circle and then you install it. But the problem for us was that this stern tube was more of a teardrop shape, which we had to actually template, which that took some more time. So there was that. Um, obviously, like little things like minor issues with equipment. Um, because of how cold the water was, guys were also moving much, much slower. Um, there was complications inside the habitat with the seals. Uh, also, when you're trying to bond seals together in those frigid temperatures, it makes things like the seal is very, very rigid. It's hard to work with um, because it's basically a piece of rubber. And when it's so cold, it becomes no longer malleable and it, it, it's very difficult to work with when you're trying to fit it into the jig or you know just even getting it down into a dry box to send to the divers um, dry boxes are also a huge part of habitat work huge part habitat uh, dry boxes basically get everything that the diver needs whether it's food whether it's drinks uh, job uh, tools for the job uh, tools that can't get wet such as the ends of our light cables and the heater cable for the bonding as well as the co2 sensor Yeah, so you you know anything that can't get wet you're putting inside these dry boxes and the seal which is like the most crucial part and uh, Crucial piece of equipment on the job. It can't get wet. It cannot get wet at all like you're trying to avoid especially at the bonding faces they cannot get wet so you're wrapping it in a latex glove then you're wrapping it in a ziploc baggie and then you're coiling the whole thing up and placing it into a dry box which is about the size of like a i don't know like a, a one gallon uh milk jug almost maybe a little bit bigger but so you're coiling it all up and depending on the diameter of the of the stern tube you know it, that seal is going to be much much larger so you're really trying to coil it tighten it and it's like this thing is so cold uh be, it's so rigid because of the cold it doesn't really want to fit inside this thing so that's that's a pain in the butt to work with um but yeah you're getting all your uh your tools sent down to you and there were some complications with that whole process of bonding the seals because of how cold it was um but at the end what really took the cake was uh the guys that were on the day shift as the job kind of got pushed from you know day after day um shift after shift because of these complications uh that were both part of inside the ship as well as uh outside the ship on our end um the day shift 
had guys that were from all different offices uh, globally, and they got to a point where they were like, "Hey, I had I have to leave to go to a next the next job." So the company had booked their return flights, like you know, two days before the end date. And as we got closer to the end date, and the end date got pushed, they eventually sent the day crew home early or however you want to look at it, left us there late. And the night crew came in, which was after everything had been completed almost. I mean, like we had the the, bond, the seals bonded and we were now ready to button everything back up, rip the habitat off, uh, do all of our checks and tests, and then reinstall the rope guard. So that t typically is done with two crews or two shifts. It's, you know, you take... You do all the um, the tests, and after the seal assembly has been installed, and they you get confirmation from the engineer that everything is good, and then you rip the habitat off. And once the habitat's off, you know you you then go through a final check over everything, and then it's time to reinstall the rope guard, which is typically done by the second crew. But at this point, they'd already left, which left us with reinstalling the rope guard so it went long. that job went super long the water was i mean at that point i was sick of eating uh korean food i was sick of the cold you know it was it was brutal it was brutal um but yeah we ripped off the uh the habitat um we then began welding the rope guard back on and you know, guys were, were dropping things because of how cold it was. Um, everybody was get getting pretty tired towards like the, you know, halfway through the, uh, the second portion of that shift, which should have been the day shift. Everybody was just done. It was, it was so, I mean, the, the chief engineer man was, was yelling at the supervisor. And I mean, yelling, he almost cried. And I, I am not kidding. The guy literally almost cried. Um, because of all these complications that had happened it was brutal uh i will always remember that seal job it was too cold too cold um but yeah that was one of my experiences with uh seal job uh habitats uh i've also done habitats within thrusters thrusters are a lot more fun you have way more room way more room um especially when you're working on much much larger ships the bow thruster tunnels are, are big enough to fit like, uh, you know, two smart cars in, maybe even three smart cars. Um, of course, you have the big thruster in there. So you got it's kind of you're climbing over the struts. You're, you're climbing over the dunce cap. You're never climbing through the blades, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's it's very it's very uh, more open, much more open. You have more places to hang stuff. Uh, you got anodes, you know, and when it comes to the thruster jobs, um, you're using primarily steel doors. I know that there's um, other companies that I've heard of that have utilized um, the same material that is used for habitats on, on stern tubes, which is this like very, very, very durable um, milita like military grade material. I can't even, I don't even know what it is, honestly. It's like science stuff. It's, it's so strong. I mean, you could probably cut it with a knife, like a razor sharp knife, and it still is not going to just like slice open. This thing is, is very, very durable. So they've had uh, thruster jobs where those types of habitats have been used. 
Uh, I don't prefer them, honestly, even though they're so strong. I'd rather, I, I trust steel, you know, so I, I know that steel is much, much more durable. It ain't going to just uh, tear, obviously. It's going to take a lot of force, much more than, um, than these habitats can probably push out to tear a whole entire, you know, uh, three eighths plate steel door in half. So, um, but yeah, when you're doing the, the thruster jobs, uh, with habitat work, uh, there's a lot of types of jobs that you could be doing. I mean, from removing the blades themselves to, which I kind of spoke about in the, uh, the second episode in ship husbandry, there was, uh, I talked about removing blades and, but I didn't really go into too much detail with it. It was more just, discussing ship husbandry types of jobs in general but this time i'll go much much deeper into like how the work is actually done and the first thing that you're going to need to do when doing thruster jobs uh that involve habitat work is you're going to be installing steel doors on the outsides of the tunnel so port and starboard you're going to be placing massive steel doors that will basically seal off the whole entire tunnel except for the lower portion. So the way a ship is, is shaped uh, beneath the surface is in the bow area is like a V, right? So when you place the steel door on either side, you're kind of putting the door like halfway, maybe like three quarters of the way down the entrance on either side so that you have an opening on, on the bottom, which is our entrance in and out of the, the habitat. So, you know, you put your steel doors on, we're going to weld them on. Once they're welded on, um, you then go inside and you weld on your, your turnbuckle, your pad eyes on like the three, the 12, the, the six clock areas, the places that you're going to be installing turnbuckles to make sure that that door is not going to move. So you have a lot of redundancies in place so that that door is going to be 100% guaranteed safe. So you have to do this on either side, port and starboard. Once that uh, the steel doors are installed on either side and you have your pad eyes on the inside, you have welded your rigging points, which is going to be for lifting the whole entire thruster or lifting the blades or lifting the, the end cap of the thruster. Um, once that's done, uh, it's now time to start running the habitat umbilical. So your main air, your communications, your lights, um, your CO2 monitor. Uh, once everything is installed, you make sure you have your lanyards tied up. You got magnets uh, inside the tunnel of the thruster. It's all steel. Obviously, it's part of the ship at this point. So you're using the actual ship as a habitat and just placing steel doors on either side. So you have a lot of places to place magnets. There's anodes typically, so you can you can hang things off anodes, and you have a lot more room. I mean, you're you could probably fit like comfortably like if you were just trying to shove guys in like clowns into a into a car you know you could probably fit like eight guys inside here it's very roomy inside these thrusters so uh obviously larger ships are going to have like which i said earlier uh they're much larger thruster tunnels the smaller ships you know i've been in thruster tunnels where it's like you're two guys maybe is kind of pushing it you're like that you're kind of squeezed up and up against the walls and stuff and you're trying to work around the blades um but once everything is uh is good you got your your habitat umbilical ran you got your uh steel doors on you got all your rigging points installed that's when you you know you, you go back up to the dive station you switch out for your band masks 
and then you dive in, you get into that habitat, you take all your gear off, and now you're working inside the habitat with, you know, nothing but just your wetsuit and your tools. And of course, you're wearing your comms headset, which is your direct line of communication to the supervisor up on the surface. Uh, you are then being in contact with the engineer on site who is kind of overseeing the whole entire project step by step. So you're making sure that, you know, you're abiding by everything that the procedure states uh, if you're going to be doing a blade exchange or thruster extraction, which does require a blade removal. So when you do remove the blades, of course, you're going to be doing some rigging, which primarily you'll be utilizing a choker around the base of the, the propeller blade, just above the palm. Um, the for those who don't know, the palm is the area on a CP, which is controllable pitch, propeller blade. So it'd be called a CP blade. And you're going to choke around the base of the propeller blade, which is just above the palm, where the bolts are securing the blade to the actual hub. So you choke it, utilizing your uh, lifting eyes that you've welded. You're going to have come-alongs and chain falls, and you're going to slowly start removing that, that blade. Now, you have a total of four blades. Primarily, bow thrusters and stern thrusters alike have four blades on them. So, each uh, blade needs to be oriented in the same position, which would be at zero, meaning that the blade is, all, actually all blades are in line running forward to aft. There's no degree change from like towards starboard or to port they need to be directly in line with each other so once the four blades are all in line with one another you can then begin to uh, utilize your high torque which is your tool that's going to loosen the bolts and then you're going to slowly remove bolt after bolt and pull the blade once you pull the blade keep in mind those propellers are balanced right so as soon as you remove one blade now you have three and now the blade is no longer balanced. All the weight is now, you know, you have the, the blade at the bottom because you, we removed the, the top blade first. And the reason for this is because you can control the oil that is inside the actual housing of the thruster. Because if you pull the bottom one out, now you have an area and a place for all that oil to flow out of, right? So if you remove the top one, you can then control the oil flow. So you pull the top one, you start leapfrogging it from pad eye to pad eye until you reach the outside of the tunnel, which is where the entrance and the exit of the habitat is. And once it's in that location, then you can begin to lower the thruster blade down to your diver who is still in the water and had it up. So if you can kind of picture this, you have two guys inside of the actual thruster tunnel who are rigging this propeller blade and leapfrogging it one, from one pad eye to the next gets it to the end of the tunnel where the other diver is waiting with his lift bag to then rig the propeller blade to the lift bag and then bring it back to the surface. So if you can picture that, that's what's going on. Once the actual uh, propeller blades, all of them, have been removed, that's when you can then begin to cap each uh, port that the blade would sit, right? So you're going to be putting a blank off, a blanking, so that no water can access the inside of that thruster because typically what the shipping companies will do is they're going to take the thruster, remove it completely out of the, uh, the bow, bow thruster or stern thruster tunnel, send it to their manufacturer like Wurzilla or Blumenvoss 
or Kawasaki or Hyundai or whoever, and then they're going to have them completely refurbish the thruster, send it back to the ship where we would then reinstall everything and give, basically give them a brand new thruster, right? So you can't have water inside of that thruster because it's going to cause corrosion and a whole bunch of other problems. So they would end up, uh, we blank them off, we blank off everything, and then we begin to pull that thruster all out in one piece. So once the actual thruster has been broken as far as the seal from the inside of the ship to the uh, outside of the ship, you then cap it off on the inside of the ship using what's called a top hat. And sometimes the ship has one that they've already made. They have it built specifically for this reason and for these thrusters. Uh, other times you actually have to fabricate one yourself. And by doing that, you're taking your measurements and everything. And this is all done prior to the thruster job itself. So this is done like, you know, maybe a couple weeks in advance before the ship gets to the location where the thruster is going to be pulled. So once the measurements are taken, we then go back to the shop, you know, you fab it up, bring it in and you install that top hat. So you would then get that thruster out completely and separated from the top of the tunnel and from the actual motor, electrical motor that drives it. Once that's done, you can then remove the thruster all out in one piece. And typically you can do it, we, like we build these habitats with exits and entrances large enough to be able to take the whole entire thruster and drop it through. If not, then you have to remove the doors and then you'd flood the tunnel. And then at that point, you can then just lift the whole entire thruster uh, out of the tunnel with the doors off and do it all in the wet. So that's another option to be able to do. But sometimes, or typically, these thrusters and these habitat doors are being built at our shops to be able to drop the thruster just through the exit and entrance of the habitat. Um, once the thruster is out and you know there's no leaks, that's, that's really the job, that's the end of it. Uh, it's just a matter of either, depending on who's gonna be doing the job on the uh, install, it could be us, it could be a competitor or whatever, it depends on the client. They could either have us remove all of our rigging or just leave it because they know that we're going to be coming right back to be able to reinstall. But basically, that's really it. I mean, it's um, it's a lot of fun. The The blade exchanges are, are a lot of fun. There's just so much involved. You, you really got to get used to um, working in awkward positions. I mean, thrusters are typically, like I said earlier, they're much more roomy. But you're still in tight spaces. And for those who are like not comfortable working in tight spaces you kind of just have to take it step by step i mean that's like the best advice that i could give for someone who's struggling to work in tight spots where you get uncomfortable and you start to kind of get into this panic mode you can't do that especially when you're doing any sort of dive work at all i mean you can't be in a panic mode at all you have to take like one step at a time and just focus on accomplishing one goal you know step by step once you can kind of do that without thinking about it you'll, you'll slowly become comfortable working in those environments but you know at first it is a little nerve-wracking because you're not used to being in this place because i mean you're kind of at least for me when i first started i was you know, i was trusting my supervisors and that's what you have to do trust your supervisors that would probably that would be the best advice by far is trust your supervisors and just take it one step at a time and accomplish one goal, you know, as the supervisor is, is delivering it, like don't overthink things and 
trust what they're saying because you know when i first started there's a lot of doubt like obviously you're like you know these guys are there for a reason they're in the positions that they're in because they work their their way to them and when they're running these types of jobs they're there because they know how to do them so when they're telling you to be able to rig to this pad eye you know and then they saw the welds themselves or they know that uh, the, the diver that welded them you know he knows that that weld is going to hold so like if he's telling you to rig to that and you're sitting there going, I don't know, you know, don't, don't question it. Trust them, you know, trust what they're saying is true. If you can, if you see something that is problematic, like you can physically see, you know, a, a fracture or indication that is telling you like this thing is not going to hold, then obviously make, make sure that the supervisor knows about it. But, you know, use common sense is all I could say. But at the end of the day, trust your supervisors. Working in habitats. It's also very vital that you don't drop anything. You're working with a lot of nuts and bolts and screws and things like that, and plugs as well. And these things you don't want to drop. You don't want to be known as the guy that's in the habitat that's just consistently dropping things because I've been on jobs where that guy is on on location and in the habitat, and it's, it's just nerve-wracking because you're constantly like, well, you know, if he drops this and then the job's going to get prolonged, we're going to be here for 10 times longer. It's like, you don't want to be that guy. Everyone is mad at that guy at the end of the day. So a uh, few tricks that I have learned over the past couple of years, and for those who have done habitat work before, probably know about it as well. Uh, and this kind of goes for like working on ships, uh, you know, working on bottom habitats. There's probably a, different types of tricks that you can utilize to not drop nothing and lose it in the mud. But for me, I utilize diapers. And for those who are uh, listening who aren't divers, I'm not talking about baby diapers. I'm talking about oil diapers, which are just pieces of, of material that is used to absorb oil. So it doesn't absorb water, so it, they float on the surface. It's basically just like a big tissue, and it floats on the water, and it doesn't absorb anything except oil. And so you can place these underneath your work area and they'll just sit there beneath the area. And if you drop anything, a screw, a plug, it will catch it and it will save your ass. I'm telling you, it has saved my ass multiple times. And I don't even tell the supervisor, you know, you, you just, you drop it. You, you see that you, it, it worked. The oil diaper caught it. You pick it back up, you wipe your hands and you just keep going and you stay a little bit more focused. You know, that's really all you can do. But Oil diapers have saved uh, seal jobs and thruster jobs and coffer dam jobs all over. Like I've, I, I learned that trick from a diver back like when I first started, and I have used it ever since, and it works. Um, the other thing is obviously magnets. Um, you can also utilize uh, those like fishing nets. You can buy them on Amazon. It's basically like almost like a hammock, like a small version of a hammock. And I've seen guys be able to place these things underneath the the work area by utilizing magnets on either side and you can then rig it in such a way that it's literally just like a big basket underneath your work so as you're working you're dropping you know whatever the case may be screws nuts bolts it, you it, you drop it you end up catching it so those are good tips uh, tips and tricks of working inside habitats to not drop anything um let's see here oh this is not on my, my notes, but, but as far as uh, working on ships, which is primarily what I'm used to, if you start to smell rotten eggs, 
rotten eggs or sulfur you obviously know bad air right bad air that is not good air you got um typically this happens like when we're doing stuff on like say the uh an ozzy pod on and and this has actually happened to me on an a cruise ship where we were doing a seal job on Ozipod and we were actually removing the stern flange which is like the lat or the most forward uh flange that meets the Ozipod and we unbolted it and as soon as we unbolted it that air that was inside that that Ozipod which was probably from like four or five years ago has just rotten like it, it smelled like sulfur co2 sensor starts going off immediately you're grabbing we grabbed our band masks we made the uh call up to the the supervisor and was like yo we got you know we got smell of sulfur and rotten eggs in here uh we need to flush the 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 whole entire habitat air system so you immediately you're putting on your band masks and you're breathing off of off of that me and the guy that i was working with we're both talking to each other making sure that we're both remaining um coherent and we then had our, our standby diver splash the water to come make sure that we were okay. Once uh, we confirmed with him that, hey, we're good, we got the band masks on, we have communication to the surface, no one's hurt, no one's passing out, and we're consistently talking to each other, that standby diver would then go up inside, uh, I'm sorry, not inside, but on the outside to the top of the habitat, and would then crack the, uh, the valve to the air habitat, and then they would pump the air uh, air control. We would actually have the control of the air on the inside of the habitat. So we would open up our valve. The standby diver would then open up the valve up top. And we were just basically flushing that air within the habitat until we got clean air. And that CO2 sensor stopped, stopped alarming. But uh, remember, if you start to smell sulfur or rotten eggs, you immediately know that there's bad air in the system. So you know you smell it make sure to tell the supervisor you grab that band mask grab your auto whatever system you guys are running and you make sure to put that on and start breathing that clean air so uh that's something that needs to be you know you got to be on your on your game you got to know and that happens fast it happens fast like as soon as we cracked it it was in like a matter of seconds and, and we were just like oh you get the headache the eyes burn you, you start really getting woozy it was not good not good and you don't want to be in a situation like that um at all so you got to be prepared all the time so anytime that you're going to be working with anything that has the potential of having bad air inside of it or high co2 levels make sure to know where your band mask is at make sure to know where your aug is at make sure you know that the uh the air system is is going to be uh, properly ventilated shortly after that and in moments like these this is when the training uh, for emergency situations comes into play and you have to really rely on that team that you're working with to make sure that everyone is is doing what they're supposed to do in times of emergency and it's really the the matter of life and death at that point so trusting your team is is very vital as a matter of fact Discussing this topic actually brings up a very good movie that I highly suggest you go and watch. It used to be on Netflix, but it's not there anymore. It is on Amazon Prime, though. It's called Pioneer, and it's about two Norwegian divers who were brothers. They worked for deep sea diving in the 1980s, and they were tasked with installing the first oil pipeline that came out of the North Sea and connecting Norway to the offshore oil grid. The problem was is that Norway is surrounded by very, very deep water. And up till the 1980s, no one had ever taken a dive 
this deep to be able to perform commercial dive work on the ocean floor. And the depth was 320 meters, which is 1,049 feet. So diving this deep, the Norwegians teamed up with the Americans to be able to utilize their breathing gas mixture that allowed the divers to work correctly and function uh, safely at those depths. Uh, I don't want to be a spoiler and ruin it for you guys, but it's pretty interesting. They utilize a habitat on the ocean floor that uh, straddles the oil pipeline, and you get to really see what the habitat looks like on the inside as well as the outside and how much room these guys have and just really how it, how it works. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, um, but I highly urge you to go and watch it. So go check it out. Amazon Prime, you could rent it for like $3.99. So this will conclude the episode three, Habitat Work. And tune in next uh, episode. Uh, not sure what we're going to be discussing. I have <clears throat> a lot of uh, topics to be able to go over. Still looking to be able to get some people on the show to discuss these topics and really see what their life experiences are with them. Uh, I really enjoy doing this, and I so appreciate the support from every single person that listens and downloads this episode. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the flip side.